0: Check out our friends at Linquistity Gifts. Linquistity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and zodiac, designed and made in the United States, as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity creativity balance focus and well-being visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code fkn to get 10% off your first order
1: over 20 dollars
0: Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Chris Newby. Before I bring her on, I have to thank C60 Purple Power, of course, the amazing super antioxidant I use every day, and I feel better than I've felt in years. I have more energy. I've lost over 30 pounds, even my memory's better. Um, I really feel great, and you should too. Just go check out all the benefits for yourself. You can click on the link in the description or visit c 60 purplebowercom and use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10. You get 10% off your order and free shipping. Also, please subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on LBRY. It is our official backup channel. Um, you never know what could happen these days with YouTube. Uh, You can still find us on all your popular podcast platforms, but we have now been demonetized by our podcast provider. You can't get in touch with anyone over the phone. They're not returning our phone calls or messages, and they're withholding over a month's worth of revenue from our podcast. So in the meantime, we're going to have to try and find a different provider. Um, I don't think this is a simple mistake. I think it's the same thing that happened with YouTube. YouTube demonetized the channel uh, for reasons saying that uh, it was too controversial. The same things that are happening now, censoring many shows like mine. Uh, I think it's another form of censorship. So we're going to try and find a different provider that won't censor us uh, and withhold our revenue. So, uh, yeah, like I said, the podcast is still going, you can still see it on all the popular platforms, but unfortunately, it was one of our primary sources of income, besides what we can earn from our sponsors. Um, I really hate asking for donations. Uh, We were taking in enough money to pay our bills and keep the show going, until we can find a new provider, which will be as soon as possible, if you would like to help Forbidden Knowledge News going with a donation, the links are in the description, and it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, The censorship is getting out of control. Things are not getting any better and all I can say is we're going to continue to broadcast as long as possible. Um, I know that a lot of information is being censored now and it's important information and needs to be heard and I'm trying to bring you this information to you. Tonight, I want to welcome to the show Chris Newby. She is an author, an award winning science writer at Stanford University, and the senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary, Under Our Skin, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was a 2010 Oscar semifinalist. She has two degrees in engineering, a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah, and a master's degree from Stanford University. Previously, she was a technology writer for Apple and other Silicon Valley companies. Chris, welcome. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm thanks, and thank you for uh, letting me share my secret history.
0: Yes, looking forward to it. And based on your research and information in your documentary, um, Lyme disease is one of the most controversial and misdiagnosed conditions of our time. And you have information that actually exposes developments of bug-borne biological weapons. Uh, and of course, that, that raises questions about the epidemic of tick-borne diseases, which affect millions of Americans today. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to getting into this information, but at first I wanna know what, what got you looking into this?
1: Well, in 2002, my family took a, a beach vacation on Martha's Vineyard back East. I live in California. And uh, we came back to California and a week later, my husband and I were sicker than we'd ever been before. And we went to the doctor and they said, well, sounds like you have a virus. And We, we didn't see a tick bite or anything, but I, I said to this doctor, well, it could be you know, Lyme disease because it's really a problem there. And the doctor said, no, no, not a problem. Just come back in a week if you're still sick. And we came back in less than a week because we were so sick and they said, no, I just talked to the infectious disease specialist, can't be Lyme. That's a really rare disease, Uh, you know, go away. And then um, things got worse. And then this was the start of a six-year illness for my husband and I, it took a year and 10 doctors and $60,000 to get diagnosed. And then after that, it was sort of a horrendous um, and very expensive treatment and um, to get out of that hole. And so in the depths of our illness, after about a year of undiagnosed Lyme disease and another tick-borne disease called babesiosis, um, we, uh, we couldn't work. We had uh, symptoms like if you had MS, chronic fatigue, early onset Alzheimer's, irritable bowel syndrome, all at once, that's what it was like. And as I researched the disease uh, in order to try and get ourselves better, I realized that what was in the medical literature was not anything like what we had. And it was really hard to get long-term treatment. Uh, so that sort of started my intense curiosity. Like, why is what the patients are experiencing so different than what uh, what's in the medical literature? And with that, I launched the film with a really talented filmmaker in Marin, Andy Abrahams Wilson. And uh, three and a half e- years later, we had this, educational documentary on Lyme disease. And that was sort of the start of realizing something was wrong with the disease. Uh, it was unlike any other.
0: Very interesting. Now, for those that really aren't familiar with Lyme disease, could you tell us a little bit about what it is, origins, and you know, what are signs and symptoms? Um, how is it treated? A few things like that.
1: Yeah. So Lyme disease is transmitted by this, uh, this spirochetal bacteria. It's shaped like a corkscrew. It's transmitted through a, a tick bite. It can also be transmitted with other co-infections in the tick. There are about 20 different um, tick-borne diseases It can make you sick. Um, very often there'll be two or three of them in one tick. So it creates really confusing symptoms. Lyme disease, in the beginning, you know, usually about a week to 10 days after it's um, flu-like symptoms, very similar to COVID, you know, muscle aches, fevers, chills, um, crushing, crushing fatigue. And uh, if it's treated early with simple antibiotics like doxycycline or amoxicillin, you can cure Lyme disease. But the problem is we don't have a reliable test in the first month for Lyme disease. So a lot of people like my husband and I are told, oh, you just have uh, a virus, it'll take care of itself. But when you have multiple tick-borne diseases, it's a load on your immune system. Not everybody can get over it. And it can even kill you um, if you have certain combos of diseases. So uh, anyways, that's that was the start of um, trying to figure out this mystery of why the medical system doesn't have a reliable test. Um The treatment aren't that good. Uh, The recommended treatments by the Infectious Diseases Society of America um, doesn't cure everyone. 15 to 20% of the people go on to have chronic forms of the disease and hasn't been well researched. We don't really know why. And so my book that I wrote, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease is sort of one reason why there's suppression about the information around the disease.
0: Now, for your book and documentary, what were the, some of the sources that you used, and um, some of the information that you found that may not be, you know, easily available to the public?
1: Yeah, with the film, uh, that was before. Uh, that was a straight patient story. You know, this is the page. It was a patient story. You know, here, here are a bunch of characters who've had the disease. Uh, We go through that process of they're misdiagnosed. They get chronically ill. They're told they're crazy. They don't need any more antibiotics. It's all in their head. It's they're just hypochondriacs or suffering from the aches and pains of daily living. You know, so that's, and then we go through their journey where they find the right doctors. So these are doctors experienced in treating tick-borne diseases and they get better and they get their lives back. So that was the documentary. At the time, there were rumors that there might be some sketchy stuff with Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases about biological weapons but we didn't really want to touch that we thought there's enough controversy in the mistreatment of these patients and you know it was three and a half years of filming 350 hours of footage we launched it it was really successful it won 20 awards including shortlisted for the academy awards and it really raised awareness for the disease but after that it was exhausting and I walked away from the film saying, I've done, you know, I've done my public service for this disease and hopefully it'll save some lives. Um, And, you know, I took a rest. I got a really good job at Stanford as a science writer. um, And I had worked there for 10 years. I recently left. And uh, so I said, I'm done. I told my husband and two weeks later, I got a video in the mail from a documentary, a sort of rogue documentary person. And it was the discoverer of Lyme disease, Willie Bergdorfer, a Swiss American scientist who worked for, worked at NIH in Montana. And in it, he gets these, uh, this documentarian gets Willie to confess that he believes that the outbreak of Lyme disease that he was involved with the discovery late in the late seventies had a bioweapons origin. And then he wouldn't say anything else. So it was sort of shocking. Because here's the guy who's famous, who was famous at age 56 for discovering this, this germ and, oh yeah, it's really easy to treat just two to four weeks of antibiotics and over. And he's saying, well, you know, I, basically that discovery is a lie because there's uh, you know, later on, I find out there was another germ that we didn't talk about in all those patients who were sick, a co-infection. So it was shocking that the person with the most to lose was saying, "There's more to this story than is published in the medical history books."
0: Now, what, what when did you start going down the the trail of the biological weapon? Um, you know, biological manufacturing of these these ticks. Basically, um, when did you start making discoveries about that?
1: So that was about, um, I think it was around, uh, well, about six years ago. So it's first getting that documentary and um, seeing Willy Burgdorfer's face when he said, yeah, I think the thing I just, I worked on that discovery, the germ that was making people sick, which isn't Lyme disease, he was saying, um, was a biological. So that was one thing. And then the thing that really pushed me over the edge was I was randomly at a party and I I was chatting it up with a guy who said a very old guy and he said, you know, I used to work um for the company which was the rogue contractor for the CIA, the plausible deniable uh contractor and he says, "Oh yeah, in uh, he he went through a bunch of really bad stuff he did in Vietnam." And uh, pretty much he was an assassination squad. But he said the fun, the weirdest thing, the strangest thing I ever did was in 1962, I dropped two boxes of poison ticks on Cuban sugar cane workers. So when I heard that and. you, You have to realize there. There is no sort of documentation of us using biological weapons on foreign soil that's verified. There's rumors, there's, you know, there's hearsay, there's anecdotal, but, you know, this was a big deal. It was a big deal because um, it was violating many treaties. It was really a crime against humanity because like, why are we making Cuban sugar workers um, uh, suffer for a political war, like innocent bystanders. And then the other thing is like, how can someone think this is a good idea? Because Cuba is 50 miles as a the bird flies to Florida. So any poison ticks we drop on Cuba are going to end up on our front door. So, so at that point, it was just like, it was a fork in a road. This is a dangerous story. It, it, it would take a lot of work. I mean, I needed to work full-time at Stanford, so I had to keep the research on the down low because this isn't something that the researchers at Stanford want to know. You know, these, They're all funded by the NIH and Willy Bergdorfer worked for the NIH. You know, <laughs> and, uh, They don't want it known that their hero scientists that they gave awards to worked in the biological weapons program for over 10 years. So the very institution institute that's supposed to protect our public health was destroying it.
0: <laughs> what, what is some of the most um, compelling evidence that you found throughout your research that yes, they were manufacturing these, these biological takes?
1: Well, I had the, you know, the eyewitness interview with Willie Bergdorfer who said he was infecting fleas with plague, uh, mosquitoes with yellow fever, deadly yellow fever and ticks with, uh, with various diseases. If you go to my chrisnewby.com website, there's a picture of the ticks. He made little glass pipettes and he would stick the pipettes in the tick's mouth and put various diseases in that. So the strategy there from Fort Detrick where he was a contractor for the offensive biological weapons program was You want to make ticks stealth weapons. You you drop them on an unsuspecting public and, you know, foreign soil, and you put it in in an insect that doesn't raise uh, eyebrows or call attention to itself, but you put a germ in there where the local population hasn't been exposed to it. So it creates an oversized, um, oversized sickness because people have no natural immunity that they've built up, you know, and in, in the best example of that is COVID. None of us, none of us in the United States have been exposed to this novel virus, this novel modified bat virus. And so massive amounts of people are getting sick. So same thing, same idea. And this was at, at the time when we were badly losing uh, the Vietnam war and the cold war against communists. And it was pretty much the ends justify the means, whatever it takes and total economic warfare, definitely with Cuba, the Kennedy brothers were mad that the American um, operation at Bay of pigs was such a disaster for the Americans. It was a PR disaster. And so their, their project was called Operation Mongoose had, you know, maybe 50, different plots to totally destroy the Cuban economy such that the people would oust Fidel Castro. And you know, you know, the ending of that story, it just didn't work. (laughs) Right.
0: Now, what, what would be some of the reasons that they would want to, you know, weaponize these, these ticks, you know, other than just, just killing people? Are you ready to live a more free, healthy and abundant life? Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system for self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant. And you can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging And learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. They can help you get off-grid and learn what systems to employ for food, water, and energy self-reliance. And live abundantly and in full connection with your property and what you produce. Click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest and have your own sustainable source of livelihood and become self-sufficient with food forest abundance. Just click the link in the description to get started with your very own food forest today. Um, what are some of the reasons that they're doing this?
1: Um, they. I'll read a passage from the Pentagon, which I think says it succinctly. (laughs) It says um, the use of arthropods, which are the eight-legged ticks and lice and fleas for spreading anti-personnel bioweapons agents. Uh, The advantages of these are they inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask, um, is no protection to the soldier and then will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. So it was a weapon where there was no fingerprints so you could get away with it and it was slow acting. So if you had a um, just like one of the many strategies, you know you weaken with these poison insects, you weaken the local population and rather than just killing them and you have, you take up the time of one undertaker. You take up the time of the whole family taking care of them, Uh, you know, five healthcare workers, uh, you fill the hospitals. uh, And so it's just one prong of a multifaceted war. They also combine it with radiation. They said, Oh, you know, if you, um, if you radiate, the tick diseases are more effective. And, you know, the nice thing about the insects are it keeps the, the infrastructure unlike bombs. You know, you, you, especially with chronic incapacitating diseases, the people who ran the city that you're about to take over can tell you how to run it before they, you know, go back to the hospital or their bed.
0: Yeah. I find it uh, very interesting that they would choose Lyme disease as, you know, one of the, the weapons that they're using to, to take out the, the, the soldiers. Now, so this was. But, but
1: I have to, I have to correct one thing that it's a common must, misunderstanding. The Lyme disease was not I have no proof that Lyme disease was the actual bioweapon. It was other tick-borne diseases that were weaponized and the actual ticks. So the army was experimenting with um, really aggressive ticks, uh, the Lone Star ticks so that they could drop those on the Soviets. And these were very hardy ticks. They were, Before the army experiments, they were only below the Mason-Dixon line in the South in the U.S. And what are crazy about Lone Star ticks is they're the only only ticks with eyes so they can stalk your prey. They can chase you and swarm. And they also carry a lot of um, these, this bacterium that's called Rickettsia that's easy to grow in large quantities, freeze dry it and turn it into aerosol powders. That can be sprayed over a whole city or a battalion. uh, And it can be breathed into the lungs of humans or bunny rabbits or mice. And then ticks bite it. So ticks help spread it once you release it in the air. So I believe, and and there's varying amounts of proof, uh, a lot of uh, that, and I'll tell you about the proof in a second because I didn't finish that earlier on. But um, I believe they had. It was a combination of accidents, which is what Willie said, it says, accidents happen. Uh, You can't always predict what's gonna happen in a military field test. But what they did, the army was really, they would make Lone Star ticks and these other hard deer ticks radioactive. And outside of Norfolk, Virginia, they would release it in a gridded field, a thousand ticks per grid that were radioactive. And then they would come out every month and collect the text, ticks in each grid and use a Geiger counter kind of device to tell how far the ticks had cre- crept away from where they released them. So why would they do that? Because if they drop poison ticks on an enemy, they wanna know how far they can spread the disease as part of their military planning. You know, So that was one thing. The other thing is they were, um, Testing rickettsias in aerosol form on monkeys, you know, just to see how, what's the lethal, lethal dose for a given temperature and humidity. So I just believe, and, and then also in the bioweapons headquarters, there was a rogue group of CIA people. They're the people who did the Cuba experiments or the Cuba operations. And they would get the advice from the bioweapons designers and do their own thing that were so secret, a lot of times they weren't written down. So what I do is just document some of these field tests they did that may have resulted in the outbreak around um, Long Island in Connecticut in the 70s, and and all the experiments that they did with aerosols that where the aerosols could have gotten out, and so a series of unfortunate events I think is what caused the accidents. Um, the Outbreak in the late 70s of three really novel, freaky tick borne diseases, which is um, the Lyme disease spirochete, um, a rickettsyl that's like Long Island, like um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which is the most deadly tick borne disease in the US, and then babesia, which is a cattle parasite, which in the late 60s was found in the United States for the first time. That year,
0: I find it insane that you know they th- would think that they can control the use of insects and not have it you know spread beyond a certain point, um, just like some of the things that are occurring now with with uh, the questionable COVID. Uh, pandemic that we're dealing with. But the fact that they would uh, release these ticks and other insects thinking that it wouldn't spread beyond and cause epidemics, I mean, uh, it just proves the mentality of some of these factions and people that they really, they don't care about human life and they don't care or, you know, if it spreads or what else happens, they just want their, you know, their experiments to work, right?
1: Right. And Uh, it's sort of the ends justifies the means mentality. This is war it's hell, and, uh, you have these microbiologists and they're not thinking about sort of the broader ecosystem implications. I mean, one thing I say about these tests is it's like an American Chernobyl. It's like releasing radiation in an area. It's been 50 years since they did these radioactive tick experiments and they did them on coastal Virginia on the Atlantic bird flyway. And as part of this, seeing how far ticks would spread, they determined that if you released, uh, if a bird with ticks, you know, on it was released in Virginia, it would take five days to make its way up to Long Island in Connecticut. Uh, So, and then the bird flyway goes all the way down to South America, Central America, up to Canada. So, this really aggressive lone star tick that they were going to weaponize, you know, two years after the experiments in Virginia stopped, all of a sudden these Long Island ticks, I mean, these lone star ticks started spreading in Long Island and replacing the native tick populations, bringing with them new diseases that this area had never seen. So birds were dying, people on Long Island were dying, and really this rickettsia outbreak from the Lone Stars, is what got the attention of everybody with this thing that they called Lyme disease. So the premise of my book is that the Lyme disease discovery, because Lyme disease would have made a really bad weapon. It grows too slowly. It doesn't really make you that sick. Rickettsias were better because you could spray the really deadly kind or this sort of incapacitating kind. Um, And so, you know, I think the Lyme disease spirochete was a skeet, was a, a hitchhiker. And when you combined it with the deadly germ, it created this epidemic. But they blamed it all on Lyme disease because they didn't want to admit that this other germ was out there. So that's that's the premise. And I try to really carefully lay out the evidence. I had things that had never been available before. Um, Willie Bergdorfer, um, after he died, or before and after he died, he had some hidden research documents from in his garage that he hadn't given to the NIH and so I had early access to that before they were released to the archives and it really laid out some of these experiments that no one had known about previously.
0: So essentially I mean these these insects any of these insects that they could have been tinkering with in the laboratories could be out there right now with who knows what kind of um, you know biological substance or whatever they're using in them, um, you know, infecting people today.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the Lyme spirochete, they've proven a cousin of the Lyme spirochete uh, was found in Europe during the last ice age. Uh, but obviously it wasn't creating the mayhem that the tick problem is now. I mean, they asked, the CDC uh, estimates that an average of a thousand people a day are getting a tick-borne disease. I mean, Lyme disease. So it was never this bad. So the question I addressed in the book is like, well, why did three freaky new tick-borne diseases not seen in man before show up, you know, in the late sixties in that area? Why, you know, and why hadn't scientists asked this, but I backed up and looked at the history. I looked at old newspapers uh, that had talked about animal outbreaks and around that New York area there are five different states and there was two federal institutions and they were all looking at different parts of the epidemic and not working together so it's like the uh, you know the blind men feel describing an elephant so I put together those pieces and put together the story that says you know hey a lot of the to weaponize an insect takes a lot of work you have to test you have to keep two things alive you have to figure out how to deploy it they put it they would put the insects in bomblets with little parachutes and they would explode the bomblets. and at a certain altitude, the canisters would explode and rain fleas down on the ground. You know, so it's really complicated. So after about the early 60s, the military said, well, that's too complicated. And they, they said, we're gonna do without the insects and we'll just do the germs that are carried by insects and make them powders that we spread. So anyways, there's a lot of room for accidents. I document a lot of the accidents. A lot of times the bioweapons people wanted more funding from Congress. So they staged fake vulnerability attacks. They put bacteria in a light bulb and broke it in the New York subway and then had people with sniffers around the subway to show that if that was anthrax, it would have killed most of New York. You know? so, I document yeah. all these. One of this
0: stuff is, is surprising to me. I mean, from the information I've learned from so many people and researchers I've had as guests, factions of our government and military and even corporate interests have not only been developing these different types of biological diseases and weapons, but they're using us as unwilling participants in their experiments. I mean, they've had LSD experiments uh, in the, the 60s and 70s with unwilling p- participants. Um, I mean, these people to me are psychopaths that are doing this. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, who or what are the entities behind this?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the worst experiments were done by the CIA group buried within Fort Detrick. And that's where Sidney Gottlieb was. He was the mastermind of the LSD experiments. And, and they had in that CIA group, uh, SOD, Special Operations Division. And that's really where they got a lot of the ideas for Operation Mongoose in Cuba. So things like, oh, let's sprinkle a horrible fungus inside the wetsuit of Fidel Castro because he likes scuba diving. diving. And oh, let's create, let's find a really beautiful conch shell because he likes to pick up shells when he's scuba diving and put an explosive in there. So when he picks it up, it'll explode or let's inject him with syphilis or make an exploding cigar. So uh, I think that CIA unit was the worst. And even the Kennedy brothers said, called it, or one of the Pentagon people called them a rogue elephant. You can't control them. You know, in their minds, they were out of the box thinkers, really creative, but they just didn't have any sort of bioethics arm to their organization. And then, you know, the other thing is you have the army and the Navy and the air force doing these really complicated bioweapons that involve live organisms and You know, they, they look good on paper, but there are unexpected things. Like the first test they did on fleas, dropping fleas, was in Dugway, Utah. And for this, I mean, they had been, Willie Bergdorfer, who discovered Lyme disease, had been working to find the best, the best protocol for stuffing the fleas with the plague. We're talking about the bubonic plague that wiped out, you know, he almost wiped out the human civilization several times in the history of our existence on the planet. But um, they did a test run of uninfected fleas on Dugway. And what they did was they, on the desert floor, they drew concentric circles and put guinea pigs around the circles. And then they flew a plane over and they had this M55 musician, munition full of little cardboard tubes with fleas and they exploded it over the, this battalion sized area. And then men in bunny suits ran out and collected, uh, or took the guinea pigs back into the lab and counted the fleas on them. And so they, they, I read the report afterward, this was called Operation Big Itch and you can look at it online. And they, they said 147 fleas out of 600,000 Ended up on the guinea pigs, so this experiment was a raving success. So, I mean, I'm just saying, the army, the army, navy, and air force, there were mistakes. Also, when they dropped the fleas on Dugway, the pilot and the co-pilots all got flea bites. You know, so so mistakes happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's insane. Now you, we we talked about fleas, uh, ticks, mosquitoes, what other type of insects or even animals do you think that they're weaponizing?
1: Well, I mostly focused on the arthropods, but uh, there, there are some interesting pictures of bat bombs uh, where they, the Japanese had, use this you put incendiary devices on the backs of bats and then when they would nest in uh, Asian roofs the incendiaries incendiaries would explode into flame and burn the houses down so that's documented Um, what other animals well they've used dolphins Um, uh, there are Okay, then, then there's two controversial areas on entomological weapons, which are in the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So there are rumors that we used insect-borne weapons there. Um, our government launched a really large uh, campaign saying that was just Russian and Chinese propaganda, but more evidence coming to light by other historians have, think that we actually did that. And it was just a disinfo campaign <laughs> to, uh, well, dropping the insects would terrorize the local population, but they would say, oh, we'd never do that. It's They force confessions out of our pilots, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and I've recently heard about these uh, genetically modified mosquitoes that um, are being released for some reason. Um, I haven't done much research into that. Um, do you know anything about that?
1: Yeah. So when the Zika outbreak happened, they thought, well, let's genetically modify mosquitoes. So we make a huge number of males sterile. So then they'll meet mate with the females and that will subvert uh, the spread of the disease. Cause the, you know, the females won't lay as many eggs that will control mosquitoes, but you know, nature always finds a way. And the, these, these, these mosquitoes multiply so much more rapidly than humans. So what happened is they did those open air experiments and then it made the situation worse because the mosquitoes that, uh, I, I don't know, just the dynamics were the mosquitoes mated more, I guess, and they had more babies. So it just, it backfired. It's just, you, ha- you have to be so careful when you do open air experiments that you really understand all the unintended consequences. It's classic chaos theory, butterfly theory. Um, I love the quote in Jurassic Park where the the chaos theory guy says, um, just because the scientists can do something doesn't mean they should do it.
0: <laughs> right, definitely. Now, when it comes to um, modern day, um, how severe is the, um, I guess, the season of ticks like say this year. I remember last year um, when uh, I had a girlfriend that had a dog and we just brought the dog out for a few minutes and brought the dog in and it was covered in ticks in a certain area that we were living. Um, So, you know, how is the, um, is it, is it a bad season or has it gotten worse? What's it like now?
1: Well, the real answer is we don't know because 99.9% 99.9% of our public health officials are focused on COVID now. So we don't like we completely skipped tick Lyme awareness week or month in May. We, no one's dragging for ticks to see how far they've spread this year. The current Lyme disease surveillance system that's been orchestrated between the states and the CDC is completely broken this year. I mean, it's very complex and Byzantine anyways and and people intensive because they designed it when the epidemic was really small and the epidemic has grown for the last 50 years. It's completely out of control. And so now it's taking too many people to do their crazy counting and they haven't really adopted new technologies, the CDC, so states like Massachusetts that have a really big problem says, we give up. We're, we're just not counting line cases anymore. It's irrelevant, it's out of control, just like the COVID stuff. You know? After, at a certain point, the contact tracing in COVID didn't work because too many people had it. It was impossible to isolate where somebody got a case. And yeah. I would say that, uh, so between the film and this book, I've been watching how the CDC has dealt with the tick-borne disease epidemic. And uh, we, we, meaning people with Lyme disease, saw the flaws of the way that the institute was working uh, early on. And, you know, <laughs> with COVID, when COVID, it was just like, before there were hairline fractures in the, in the institution. Now it's just like cracks in a dike. Yes, deluge. deluge. So it's not a surprise to us.
0: Let's talk about the the CDC numbers. Um, I want to get into some COVID stuff too, but when it comes to you know Lyme disease, um, I can see definitely why they wouldn't be reporting numbers because they're not even reporting flu numbers anymore. Um, the CDC is contradicting itself in so many ways, uh, especially with what's coming out on the mainstream media with the COVID. Um, what do you think is, is is going on with some of the stuff uh, that's going on with the CDC right now? Um, they're obviously manipulating numbers on numerous things. And I find it very odd that they're not even reporting flu numbers this year.
1: Yeah. I, so first of all, it's a huge organization and I know a lot of the people who work there and they're really smart and they're hardworking, but I think the bureaucracy bureaucracy there discourages uh <laughs> effective and accurate uh reporting and we certainly saw that play out uh you know with covid in spades and there are a lot of people like pro publican and stat who've written really good oh and the atlantic has the best one about how the cdc botched it and and we've seen that same dynamic with lyme disease and you know the other thing is about the cdc it was originally Founded in the after World War II as a, a military surveillance organization to be a sentry against biological attacks and pandemics like COVID. So they really come to it with a military frame of mind where transparency isn't job one for them. You know, if it's an embarrassing accident from the US military facility or an attack by the Russians just like the, you know, the attack on the Cuban embassy with the microwave weapon, you know, they will keep it a secret as long as they can because they want to keep their jobs. They don't want something embarrassing to come out. And I've found that with Freedom of Information Act requests. It's just like CDC is the worst and other journalists have said the same. Uh, You know, secrecy is job one for them.
0: Right. Now, when it comes to this COVID um, I think it was last night, a representative from the Army was announcing that the vaccine's ready to go and we're ready to have mass distribution. Um, ever since t- 2020 started and this whole pandemic uh, got rolling, you could see the agendas coming out behind it. You could see things kind of getting rolling. You could see which direction that certain factions wanted things to go. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on where this is going. Um, they are trying to, of course, mandate these vaccines under emergency orders. Some countries are doing it already. Um, what are your thoughts on the the COVID situation and the vaccines?
1: Um, so I think uh, I'm, I'm on a couple I'm not a physician or a PhD researcher, first of all, and, and I am for vaccines big time, but um, there are good vaccines and bad vaccines, and there are too many vaccines and just enough vaccines. So, you know, sometimes our government doesn't make the right decisions there. But the based on the feedback from the experts on these groups, i um, the chat groups I'm on, I think, uh, we're putting too many eggs in the vaccine basket and we're not doing sort of proactive early treatment for early uh, COVID. And uh, treatments that there is enough data to say that if you treat right when the symptoms happen with like uh, hydrochloroquine, it keeps people out of the hospitals. And that's a good thing right now. Because right now, I mean, what what we're suffering from is, I mean, is not enough healthcare workers in ICU beds. And so if we had a strategy from the beginning and we're just late to the game with that, it would be prophylactic uh, treatment with zinc C and hydrochloroquine early on. And hydrochloroquine is a really safe drug. I think there are conflicting studies out there But the ones that I've read say, you know, it's a super safe drug, you can even give it to pregnant women, and it does help. The problem is a lot of the trials in the US were given to people already in the hospital. So that's, that's not a good test. That's too little too late. So uh, I, you know, in the vaccine, it just seems
0: rushed to me The, 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 the vaccine seems rushed. Usually these take trials for for sometimes years. And all of a sudden, it's ready to go. And we've had, you know, Some people die, some negative side effects already. Um, It just doesn't seem like it's a safe thing to do right now.
1: Yeah. So when I was in Stanford, I worked in the clinical trials group and I was a communicator in that group. And we ran a lot of classes to teach the next generation of researchers how to run, run good clinical trials. And, you know, before COVID, the fastest vaccine to make it to market took four and a half years using our our process, our FDA process, which is really, really slow. Um, with COVID, we've had pretty much all the best and the brightest researchers working on it and pharma working on it, and they've been well funded. So, certainly, we can do better than four and a half years. But, you know, it's fast, and there's going to be some collateral damage because. There's no such thing as a 100% safe vaccine. So I just hope that there isn't a really big disaster early on that would disincentivize people from taking the vaccine, because I do think the problem's big enough. We need a vaccine. It's just, it's going to be a little messy. And I hope, yeah, I hope it doesn't scare people away from what may be a truly effective vaccine. We just don't know yet. It's too soon, too soon
0: now in your research um on the um weaponized ticks, did you have any challenges or pushback from academia or any organizations um did you have any you know people trying to stop you or anything like that
1: um i was i tried to keep it really quiet until you know the last year and a half where i had to pitch the book and run it through experts uh I was told along the way, especially by the people in the sort of bi- biosecurity world, watch your back. This is dangerous. Um, so at times I was a little worried, um, but a lot of the people are dead now who wouldn't want this out. So and uh, so it, it was scary. My dad, who <laughs> was in naval intelligence and he worked as a contractor with it. CIA, he was worried for me. He he says, don't get yourself killed over this, Chris. So that was a little disconcerting. uh, But I just felt like uh, it was really important information to get out there. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't wrap up all the evidence in a nice bow, which I felt bad about. But, you know, I did make some serious progress. And Hopefully, I planted a seed of curiosity in a bunch of researchers who will really look and find out what's inside the ticks, because what my book said is it's not just Lyme that's causing the problem. It's these co-infections, and some of them may be, like, genetically modified, either naturally or unnaturally, during these thousands of biological experiments in Alaska and Utah and Virginia and Montana, (laughs) you know, they're just open air, like, Uh, so... It just gives, I I did the secret history of Lyme disease. I looked at the backstory and it'll explain the crazy outbreak that happened in the 70s. Like, why did that happen?
0: What do you think has to happen moving forward, especially with COVID going on? And this is no longer even in the CDC's spotlight at all. Um, What do you think? should happen i guess with independent researchers like yourself Uh, what can people do to kind of help out to spread this information and bring awareness Uh, what are your thoughts
1: well everybody knows somebody who's been impacted by tick-borne diseases now so i would say if someone was bitten by a tick they get really sick they don't get better the doctor says it can't be chronic Lyme that doesn't exist or whatever. Just go to, there's some really good websites now with information that will help patients and don't stop at the first doctor. You know, if you have a doctor who doesn't believe in Lyme disease, it would be like changing his religion or her religion, you know, try to find someone who is very experienced with tick borne diseases. And it might be a little expensive up front. Maybe they, they don't take your insurance, but you know, it'll save you money in the long run. Uh, and then, um, so the, the websites are, um, .org is the best for patient information. There's Barry Lyme Foundation. That's great. If you pull out a tick, uh, send it in, you can get it tested for free now. And that's faster than waiting until you've had the, the disease for over six weeks and the tests work. So take the tick. Tech- tick, put in a baggie, put a little piece of damp towel in there and send it off to the many places so you can test it for free or maybe $40. Pennsylvania has a really good site. Uh, and a lot of don't send it to your local health department this year because of COVID. Uh, I do really worry that a lot of people with tick-borne diseases, we've all been at home, we're spending more time outdoors, you know, on cell phone calls while we're walking through the brushy grass, sitting on logs. A lot of people are going to get Lyme disease or one of the tick-borne diseases and think it's COVID and they'll go into COVID and they'll do the test and they'll say, you don't have it since the symptoms are very similar in the beginning, except for the taste and smell. (laughs) You know, uh, you just need to, if you have a friend with that, just suggest get get Lyme disease tested or, you know, because you don't want it. Every month you have this chronic disease, it may be harder to get rid of, just like with my husband and I a year. We were really sick pretty much every day for that year and then it took us six years to recover. What so, are the, uh,
0: What are some of the best treatments if you do have Lyme disease or one of these tick-borne diseases?
1: Well, I think it's really important to find out which of the tick diseases you have because they all require slightly different treatment protocols. Like Babesia, the cattle parasite takes anti-malarial drugs and then Uh, Lyme disease it's doxycycline or amoxicillin if you get this tiny little disease it's really hard to test for called Bartonella uh, that takes a rifampin so that's why it pays to get an expert just like if you had a very specific brain tumor you would find a doctor who had treated a lot of those brain tumors you know it's the shortest path to wellness.
0: Very good. Now, um, before you head out, if people are interested in finding out more about your book and your documentary, what are some of the best ways they can do so?
1: So I think uh, Amazon prime is, if you have the prime subscription, you can watch under our skin for free. So that's really good. And that's, that's a good film to exp- to show your family or someone who might have Lyme. This is sort of a good example of the range of symptoms you can have, but it's, it's a neurological disease that can infect every organ and neurological system in your body. So it's, it gives, it gives you ideas on what, you know, what to look for. And then the book uh, is available, you know, audio, Kindle, whatever through the normal bookstores. But um, if you want more information, my website, www.chrisnewby.com has a lot of pictures in high res that some are in the book, some aren't. I mean, there's 50 pictures in the book of parts of the biological weapons program. And then some of the original documents and I'm still trying to post them and annotate them and explain them. But, you know, they're sort of interesting just to see what the Pentagon was thinking or, oh, we're going to use tick-borne tularemia because it's so cost-effective. We can kill a person for a dollar and 33 cents. So <laughs> you
0: know. Wow, that's insane.
1: It'll make you a believer.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on tonight. That was excellent information, and uh, I think uh, people should really start looking into this more. And again, what was your your website was chrisnewby.com, right?
1: Yeah, Chris with a K, K R. Uh
0: huh. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we talk again soon.
1: All right. Thanks, Chris, and don't forget to do tick checks.
0: <laughs> we'll do. And for everyone else, have an excellent evening. Okay.